0: Hey, Matt Techman here from Elucidations. Before we get going today, I just thought I'd ask if you're a fan of the show to maybe go to our iTunes page and leave a rating and or review, and that way more people can discover it. All right, thanks. to Elucidations, a philosophy podcast recorded at the University of Chicago. I'm Matt Teichman. And I'm Daniel Smith. With us today are James Conant, Chester D. Tripp Professor of Humanities, Philosophy, and Professor in the College at the University of Chicago, and Jay Elliott, Assistant Professor of Philosophy and Classical Studies at Bard College. And they are here to talk about the analytic tradition. James Conant and Jay Elliott, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So the two of you are editing a volume entitled The Norton Anthology of Western Philosophy, it's volume five, and uh, subtitled The Analytic Tradition. Could you tell us a little bit about where this project came from, how you became involved with doing it?
1: So uh, I think it was 1995, my god, let's see, 19 years ago now, Richard Schacht, who's the series editor for the whole Norton Anthology of Western Philosophy, asked me if I would be willing to edit this volume. I'd been asked to do some other volumes uh, before and since and never been interested in doing anything like that. But um, when I was a high school student and a college student, I did have a copy of the Norton Anthology of Western Literature, as it was called then, I think, yes, because it had Ibsen and people in translation as well. That book sort of accompanied me through my years as a student and was for me sort of... The repository of all things that at some point in my life I felt I should have read, and anybody who was in it I knew was a great name and someone I should get around to reading someday. And finally, did. And at this point, my copy of that book looks like it's been through the wars, it's fell into a couple of bathtubs, but it, it's also something that um, has a great deal of sentimental significance. The idea of having a Norton anthology devoted completely to the analytic tradition was exciting to me in a different sort of way. It was the idea. Um, that here was a chance to have a book that's almost 5,000 manuscript pages long, over 1,200 pages in the volume on Bible paper, small print, double columns. We're just in a single doorstop of a volume, which is not too expensive and which you can buy for paperback and a professor can order for a single course. You could really sort of stake out an overview of this whole tradition of philosophy that I care about. I don't know of anything else like that for the analytic tradition most volumes that try to say what the analytic tradition is in a volume do it through a few excerpts and it's extremely partial story and usually one that's informed by a very particular ideological slant and this seemed like an opportunity to really think about the tradition and create a volume that people could use for their entire time as students and beyond and keep going back to and so that was exciting to me in a different kind of a way. At a certain point however I realized that this job was just much too big for one person, I kind of got through the part of getting advice and selecting things and figuring out what should go into it, but then the actual editing of the volume, writing the introductions to the parts and the volume as a whole, and the headnotes and the bibliographical essays and figuring out just what to select and how to excerpt them and write particular explanatory notes for difficult terms or issues in the individual selections, the actual job of producing the volume, I realized, was enormous, and I'd gotten myself into a much larger project and I appreciate it, I needed help with this. I also needed somebody, I realized at a certain point, who had forms of expertise that I, um, where my competence was limited, especially in the ethical and moral and political and legal aspects of the tradition of analytic thought. And I had a wonderful graduate student at Chicago named Jay Elliott, and I asked him if he'd do this volume with me. I think that was in 2004, and it's really over then the... Um, last 10 years that that part of the volume the part which the editors do beyond selecting it which was you know prior job have come about and that's been then a cooperation between the two of us since then.
2: When uh, Jim asked me to come on board as his co-editor in 2004 I was very excited about the project not only because I have a history with Norton anthologies that's very similar to his in the sense that particularly the Norton anthologies of English literature had a kind of sacred you know, status in my household. Growing up, they were sort of function as a kind of you know secular family Bible. In my family, these were you know things that my parents had used in college. They very much represented to them sort of what it was to be an educated person in a certain kind of area. They have now passed them down to me, and I have them you know, on my shelves at home. And so that part of the project really excited me. I also was really interested in the idea of thinking about analytic philosophy from the point of view of a kind of historical tradition that could be presented in an anthology, you know, like those ones for that have been done for literature. My relation to this was was informed by my experience as an undergraduate, having been as an undergraduate, you know, part of a, a program that was, you know, deeply invested in lots of analytic philosophy and having studied lots of analytic philosophy as an undergraduate but also feeling fascinated by that stuff, but also at the same time sort of, like, confused about how that stuff is related to other things that one might call philosophy. Um, You know, my previous experience with philosophy before I got to college was having read people like, you know, Kierkegaard and Nietzsche and, you know, Sartre and whatever. And then suddenly I found myself, you know, reading these things about, you know, Frege's view about proper names, whatever, and it wasn't, like, totally clear to me how exactly this counted as the same kind of thing as the stuff that I had read before. And I was... I I think many students, you know, undergraduate students that first get exposed to analytic philosophy have that kind of experience. And so one of the things that I thought this volume was a really interesting opportunity to do was to try to think about sort of where did these problems come from that analytic philosophers talk about? How can we place them within a kind of larger frame that will help to sort of give undergraduate students a kind of orientation to what these problems are about and and sort of how analytic philosophy works as a philosophical tradition?
1: When I I started out, doing this volume and making the selections, and Jay was then, when he came on board, very sympathetic to this way of thinking about the volume, I wanted to be true to something that I thought was the conception that informed the Norton anthologies of literature, which is that they shouldn't be some partial one person's view of, you know, what the greatest hits are. But uh, to the extent that this is possible, they should be some sort of God's eye view of what the most important things are what the educated uh, person in this area, as Jay put it before, should know, and therefore what somebody who wanted to have some kind of overview of the analytic tradition and the sorts of things that it influenced and impinged on it should know. So I was trying to avoid having a volume where I was just sort of slanting it to my own interests or preference or trying to sort of implicitly have some persuasive definition of what analytic philosophy was I was trying to convince people of by slanting in a certain way. Um, and so I was trying to get a lot of feedback and advice about different people about what they would want in such a volume if they used it to teach different courses and what belonged in and what different. But I very quickly discovered that. Um, this was a very hard thing to do. That very different people had very different ideas of where the center of gravity of the tradition lay, or if they were thinking in more historical terms, who the crucial historical figures were. So you, you very quickly had more candidates to put in the volume than you could possibly do. And if you even ask people about certain important authors, Bertrand Russell or, or Wittgenstein or Frege, which things should I just have by that author? There were many more things that people thought should go in than you could afford for any single author. So very quickly I realized that um, 5,000 manuscript pages wasn't very much, even though it initially seemed like an ungodly amount. And so there were many, many decisions to be made. And I think up till the very end, we still found ourselves in the mode of sort of having to give things up. We were hoping we're in there. But always um, as much as possible trying to do something that would give as big a tent as possible for a conception of what the analytic tradition might be and figure in as many different kinds of courses as possible.
3: So I share your history with the Norton anthologies as like treasure troves that one becomes really attached to and carries with one through one's education. And from that perspective, it seems like, especially if you're aiming for a God's eye view, it must have been a really fraught experience to start deciding what goes in and what doesn't go in and what selections from which authors go in. I feel like I have a better sense of what principles of selection govern the Norton Anthology of Poetry, what kinds of considerations influenced you in in your choices of authors and of texts, and how did you try to let A Thousand Flowers Bloom, where there were so many competing takes on what should really go in this God's eye vision of the tradition?
2: Well, I think you're right that it's a difficult decision-making process. I think, you know, for us, The principle of unity that we really wanted to organize the volume around really was the idea of a tradition taken very seriously, where for us, you know, that's quite a rich notion that's informing our understanding of how the volume is constructed. It's not just sort of like, you know, one thing after another or something like that, but this idea that one can see certain kinds of, lines of internal development, uh, but also of internal debate and various ways in which different kinds of approaches evolve out of things that came earlier. And at a certain moment, the tradition even becomes kind of conscious of itself and starts reflecting on itself and on its own history. And and those were all things that we wanted to capture. I think our sense was that this was such a unique opportunity to give this kind of broader view. There were really three things that we especially wanted by comparison with other um, volumes that you might think of as having a similar concern. One was that we really wanted to place the tradition within a broader historical context than has been done in the past. So, our volume includes lots of selections from people that I think don't count by anyone's definition as uh, analytic philosophers. I mean, it's people people like Ernst Mach or Franz Brentano or you know, Henry Sidgwick, but who we thought really were essential figures in, you know, background in the 19th century for understanding the developments that, that happened within the world of analytic philosophy in the 20th century. So there's that broader historical kind of context which ties things that happen in analytic philosophy properly speaking to earlier kinds of philosophical debates, debates between, let's say, you know, German idealism versus empiricism and so forth, these kinds of larger philosophical debates in the 19th century. That was the first thing. Second, we really wanted to have a sense of, you know, analytic philosophy as having interesting conversations with certain kinds of near neighbors, philosophical traditions that in some ways are quite different or maybe develop independently, but that start to function as interlocutors for the analytic tradition in an important way. And there's really two traditions that we spend a lot of time focusing on in that respect, one being American pragmatism and the other being the tradition of logical positivism broadly construed as it developed in Austria and Germany in the 1920s and 30s. So we wanted to really have those things be represented in a fair amount of depth and a fair amount of detail to really give a sense of how the conversation between analytic philosophers and these other traditions developed. And then the third thing is we really wanted to have much more of a sense than is often the case in other volumes of the real centrality of topics in practical philosophy, ethics, and political philosophy, as Jim was mentioning earlier, things that really play a very important role in the tradition. There's a kind of standard narrative about analytic philosophy and what its greatest hits are that really emphasizes a very particular set of topics, whether it's logic, the philosophy of mathematics, the philosophy of language, epistemology, and so forth. And no doubt all of those things play a very important role, but we really wanted to bring out how practical philosophy has been there playing an important role really from the beginning, and that there's a lot of dialogue between sort of discussions in practical philosophy and discussions in theoretical philosophy that do characterize the tradition in ways that haven't always been appreciated, particularly in the kind of
1: standard way in which the tradition gets anthologized. So as was coming out in what Jay was saying. What happens once you actually start editing a volume like this is you realize it's not just a matter of choosing the most important things, but we're trying to... Um, illuminate certain conversations. So we want to have both sides of the conversation in it. We want to sort of bring out certain kinds of family resemblances between various sorts of things in the tradition. So you start going for snapshots in different corners of the tradition that bring out the similarities. So you start choosing things you wouldn't if you were just trying to make a list of the greatest hits. Another kind of tricky thing about the analytic tradition, especially in the parts of are concerned with issues in logic or philosophy mathematics, philosophy of science, is you have texts that might be quite important but are formidly difficult and technical and you don't admit of excerpting easily and aren't the kind of thing you can teach other context. And we were trying to look as much as possible for readings that would have a certain sort of self standingness that would be available for a course that had a larger historical sweep without leaving out you know a whole area because there wasn 't time to go into background and so that creates a different kind of selection the sort of text you take from a philosopher who 's done important technical work isn 't necessarily the text that gives you the quintessence of that technical work but nonetheless gives you a sense of their voice and their interests and their traditions and what its importance was to the tradition. So it, it turns out not to be our greatest hits in the same kind of way that a literature or poetry volume might be as you anticipated. That's right. Another thing that um, came out, I think this is implicit in what Jay was saying but maybe I'll sort of make it fully explicit, is that it became clear to us in the way that we wanted to do this volume that what it is to bring out um, the unity of the analytic tradition insofar as it has one, or at least provide materials that would allow people to reflect on what that unity is, wound up having a different kind of emphasis than I think one gets in a shorter volume that has a shorter story to tell. So one striking thing is if you read some essay on, you know, the origins of analytic philosophy or you read some shorter anthology and you read the introduction, they want to bring out what's important things tend to be defined in what we might call doctrinal terms. I want to bring out what's characteristic or peculiar about analytic philosophy, partly in terms of what the philosophical doctrines are that mark out the analytic philosophy. So it's a certain kind of realism versus a certain kind of prior idealism before the rise of analytic philosophy. Or it's a certain kind of emphasis, a certain kind of empiricism versus something else. And um, if you're trying to have a more capacious volume I think what strikes you as you're looking at different things and thinking about other people's suggestions for what might go into the volume is that it's pretty much impossible to give any sort of non contentious account of what analytic philosophy is that tries to characterize it in terms of a doctrine or even a set of doctrines. There are people who are. I think undeniably analytic philosophers who hold just about any kind of doctrine you can come up with. And so it doesn't seem like at the end of the day, once the tradition becomes richer and more variegated, what holds it together is that one adheres to this ism or, or something in this set of isms, or even that there's some particular ism that is anathema. to every. What, maybe there are things that are anathema to analytic philosophers, but they aren't doctrines. They have to do with other features of the style and method and character and tone of philosophy and how it exhibits itself. So that meant we started wanting to have pieces that were quintessences of a certain kind of procedure or, or showing or demonstration or analysis or method and trying to bring out breakthroughs of that sort in the tradition where the character of the way analytic philosophy is prosecuted started to change from one generation to the next rather than something that was an argument for a particular thesis or view. and. So that also influenced the selection in ways that I don't think either was necessarily anticipated at the beginning.
2: I think just to underscore something that Jim said, I think really the, you know, the central thing that's really driving our project is the idea of trying to capture the full diversity of the tradition. And so, yes, it's a diversity with respect to doctrines, right? There isn't some set of theses that one has to subscribe to in order to be an analytic philosopher at the same time it's a diversity of methods i think you know it's natural to look at the name analytic philosophy and think oh i guess that must be you know some kind of philosophy where they do analysis and in some sense that's true there's a lot of that that goes on but I think one of the things we try to bring out in the course of the volume in this guided our choice of selections is the sense that analysis means quite different things at different times in the history of the tradition. At one point it's more closely tied to the use of certain kinds of techniques from mathematical logic. At another point it becomes sort of quite closely tied to the idea of looking at ordinary language. At another point it's quite closely tied to ideas about certain kind of like reductive programs and so there are very different things that can be going under the name of analysis over the course of the the tradition. This is one of the things that kind of defines the the tradition is not so much that there is some one thing analysis that everyone agrees on, but rather that this is one of the things that people fight about, is supposing that that's something that one cares about as a kind of philosophical banner what does it mean to fight under such a banner? I mean, we've really tried to capture the diversity of different kinds of things that that can mean and has meant.
3: Okay, so it sounds like you want to eschew a mode of collecting these texts that presupposes some definition of what analytic philosophy is. And you want to capture the variety of things people have meant by analysis, conceptual analysis or whatever. And instead, you're more interested in the way in which that title has meant something to people who either want to use it as an epithet or self-ascribe it or place themselves as members in a certain kind of tradition. So that seems to be a really self-reflective way of defining the principle of unity of this anthology. It also seems like a way, by emphasizing this notion of tradition, you really introduce a, a conversational but also a historical element to the different figures you treat it's not like a figure falls under a certain description and therefore goes in the volume it's rather that they stand in in a host of different kinds of relations to other figures who are in the volume already or so they all go in together as it were that's right
1: so in a sense we wanted the volume to allow people to proceed in the reverse order from a certain kind of order you might expect for certain volumes. In the introduction, you're told what the principle of unity is through a definition or something. Those people who meet this description are analytic philosophers, and then you get the people in the book who fit the account in the introduction. We sort of wanted um, things to work in the opposite direction, so we have a general introduction, and afterward various part introductions and so forth, but their relation to um, the contents of the book is... um, in the sense just mentioned reverse, that is, we have all of these exhibits of things that it seems to us non-controversially would count as analog philosophers to many people, and some who would controversially count as such. And then we thematize, first of all, why the controversial ones are controversial. And secondly, then kind of allow it to be a topic of reflection, what holds the other people together. And in the general introduction, one of the things we do is we go through some definitions of analytic philosophy and bring out what is partial about each. We do this in different ways. We both look at definitions of some of the crucial figures in the tradition offered, though it's an important fact about the early part of the tradition that none of those people thought of themselves as belonging to the analytic tradition. So and another thing we interested ourselves in is at what point do we have a kind of retrospective vantage on the tradition? Is enough decades... Old that people start seeing it as hanging together in a certain kind of way, and so you you need already a certain historical distance for the word analytic tradition to pick out something. It wasn't you know part of the initial understanding of how anything got started. And then we look at various attempts, you know, by much more recent people to define analytic philosophy as a matter of method or style or something. And we in every case we do that we try to bring out what also seems partial and unpersuasive about that and what it leaves out. So. Um, and our ground for doing that are the things included in the volume that um so uh, you're right to notice that there's something different about how we're doing this you're also right to have sensed that you know one of the themes of this volume is the way in which analytic philosophy itself over its history comes to a certain kind of historical self-consciousness about itself as a tradition i think the early analytic philosophers are doing what they do. They're arguing with their contemporaries. They are affecting a rather extraordinary and interesting break in the history of philosophy. So it stands out and allows itself retrospectively to be viewed as the beginning of the tradition. But it's only at a certain stage that there's sort of an ideological investment inserting people a certain kind of way. And then as you get these internal tensions starting in the middle of the 20th century analytic philosophy, there comes a new kind of ideological stake in saying, I am the one who's true (laughs) to the earlier founders. Or these are the people that should stand out as the crucial founders and not these people. So you start having implicit arguments within analytic philosophy that do at least implicitly and sometimes explicitly Take the shape of a contest of inheritance about what are the most important things in the tradition which these people see themselves as both belonging to. So now instead of, and the earlier phases, trying to constitute a movement and getting people to get on board, we have something that's founded itself in a way that has a little bit more of the flavor of a church that has an interest in excommunicating people that don't look like they are true believers in the right sort of way, which then can lead to, as it were, forms of division and reformation and, you know, in internecine wars, which start becoming more important to people in analytic tradition than what their relation is to some other tradition they're defining themselves against. They're starting to define themselves against each other. And we wanted a volume that could bring out those sorts of debates. And so that also then does influence some of our selections. Some of our selections are there because not it's the most important essay by this person, but it brings out this kind of front in the overall difficulty of trying to kind of get a grip on what this tradition is. So we want the topic of the tradition to be one that the volume as a whole allows for reflection on, but not to be one where the volume simply comes down with a single answer that's supposed to control the reader's view of the matter.
2: Related to what Jim was just saying, I think, you know, for us, the sense of the tradition is something where you know the principle of sort of who is in and who is out is something that evolves over the course of the of the tradition and something that is itself a subject of debate within the tradition is quite important I think there are some ways in which that leads to certain kind of like narrowing of the sense of who can count which is one sort of thing that does happen over the course of this tradition you have people who are trying to as Jim was saying kind of define for certain polemical purposes who does and doesn't count and then trying to kick people out or trying to police certain kinds of boundaries as a part of that, but it's worth noting that there's also a rather different kind of movement, which is that over the course of this history, you get certain kinds of broadening also, where people who at the time that they were working, you know, weren't thought of by themselves or anyone else as being part of this tradition, retrospectively get sort of adopted to the point where it's, it comes to seem almost um, obvious that these people are essential to narrating the, the history. So, for example, at a certain early point, you know, in the early 20th century, you have people working in Cambridge, whether it's, you know, Moore, Russell, Wittgenstein, Ramsey, these people who sort of, if they didn't quite think about themselves as, you know, all inaugurating a philosophical tradition, or certainly not the same philosophical tradition necessarily, they did think about themselves as sort of in conversation with one another in ways that were quite important for their projects. But they had a sense Of what they were doing as like vastly different from what was going on over at this other very very foreign place named Oxford and the idea that somehow these things were in any way related to each other what was happening at these two institutions during this time would have seemed totally bizarre not only to the Cambridge guys but equally to the Oxford guys but as the tradition went on and developed and came to be sort of inherited in um, different and broader Ways, particularly after World War II, there came to be you know an Oxford school of you know, analytic philosophy that was interested in inheriting not only Cambridge you know, but also things that earlier Oxford figures were doing people um, like h a Pritchard and these kind of people and so there 's a sense of like that these people can be sort of retrospectively adopted. And that's part of the richness, you know, of the of the tradition, that it does have a certain kind of adaptability so that even people who weren't originally part of it can kind of become part of it retrospectively in virtue of the way in which they become essential reference points for people who come later within the
1: tradition itself. Maybe it's worth also emphasizing off of what Jay just said. I mean, Jay was emphasizing the point that particular moments in the history of the tradition where people were very concerned to define themselves against each other. CI Lewis was very concerned that Rudolf Carnap should not get a position at Harvard because his views in ethics showed that he was an immoral person and immoral people cannot be good ethicists. So differences like that or you know or sort of like the one that Jay was talking about the difference between Oxford and Cambridge at a certain point in England were what people cared about. Seeing these people as all analytic philosophers requires a further development in which something about their way of doing philosophy strikes people as significantly overlapping so that someone thinks of themselves in a later generation as being able to be interested in both Cambridge and Oxford, both Carnap and Lewis, and those differences don't matter. But um, as that happens, another thing happens, which is as the analytic philosophy tradition becomes more capacious, and you have more and more people self-identifying and thinking it's important to their own conception of what they're doing, that they're analytic philosophers, and therefore inheriting things that happen in Oxford and Cambridge and Carnap and Lewis, that it becomes an issue what the alternative to analytic philosophy is, as it becomes something that can include more and more people. What's its other this is something we also thematize in the volume in various ways, and that itself is a contested issue. Um, But one sort of side theme of the volume, but it might be worth bringing up for a minute, is the way in which a label sort of arises, um, which is the term continental philosophy. and We try to trace its history a little bit and how it comes about, but if one tries to say what continental philosophy is, that's even harder to do I think than say what analytic philosophy is. And it's also a very strange term for the other because it seems to be geographically rather than thematically defined. It seems like you're, you know, comparing, you know, people with blue eyes to people who are Belgians, you know, it doesn't seem to form a contrast exactly. And you know, one of the things we suggest to put it, you know, very bluntly is that in some ways the term continental philosophy comes to stand for Something that stands to analytic philosophy roughly the way sophistry stands to philosophy for Socrates. And insofar as it hangs together and itself has a principle of unity, it's by way of being something like the phantasmatic other of analytic philosophy, the various sorts of people who are all doing something that's not what we're doing or what. We think people should be doing philosophy is the thing that holds that category together rather than some self-understanding that all those people have (laughs) that involves a positive internal conception of philosophy. But I think those ways of defining the other at a certain point in the tradition do help to consolidate the sense of there being a boundary so that analytic philosophy still stands for something positive as it stands less and less for a particular method or a particular way of doing things that has a clear sort of unity and structure. And indeed, as you get into the later parts of the tradition, if you ask a certain number of contemporary analytic philosophers, what is it about what you do that makes the word analytic the crucial word for describing your method? What's the kind of analysis that you do I think many of them have no stake you know, in the term analysis as the term that defines the center of their own conception of what makes their kind of philosophy. philosophy. Some still do, but I think many don't. So it really is their relation to a larger tradition that continues to give that word a point to you know, categorizing themselves in a certain sort of way. But if you want to know what that word stands for, you have to then look back in the history and see how that word got its significance in the tradition as opposed to naming a particular method in the present.
0: So an interesting dilemma that presents itself when you're editing a volume like this, which is supposed to represent a historical tradition, and as we've been saying, part of what makes it possible to think of analytic philosophy as a tradition is our historical move from it. It allows us to retrospectively look back and see similarities that people at the time didn't necessarily see. So one interesting dilemma that presents itself when you're editing a volume like this is how close to the present will you get? And then specifically, once you do get to the present, How do you decide who gets into the volume and who doesn't get into the volume? Because precisely, we presently lack that historical move to look back on where we are now and see the kinds of patterns of influence we are now able to see in the past. So how did the two of you try to resolve
2: that that dilemma when putting this together? Well, you're right that the choice of authors and selections for the most recent history was the most difficult, and I think will be the most contentious in the volume partly just because we don't have the same kind of historical perspective and so we're not in a position to talk in the same way about sort of who has been inherited by the subsequent tradition as being important. It may very well be that several decades from now our sense of what was important, what was essential, what was integral to the development of the tradition will be quite different from what it is now. I think there's a number of more specific features of the way that the analytic tradition has developed within the past few decades that make it even more difficult than it might otherwise normally be to talk about the recent past. One is that the sort of range of sources and references that one can draw on and still sort of count as a relatively uncontroversial example of an analytic philosopher has gotten broader. And so, you know, at the time when Russell, say, you know, was writing, you know, from his point of view, it was very clear that whatever tradition he was a part of, it was one that was, you know, Toto opposed to, um, you know, Hegelianism. And indeed, um, it would be unthinkable to think that what he was doing could in any way be reconciled with, you know, also having a deep interest and sympathy with the work of Aristotle. I mean, this would just seem like a bizarre idea. But in the, context of contemporary analytic philosophy, you know, one has things like, you know, analytic Hegelianism or analytic Aristotelianism, you know, these kinds of things that involve just a kind of like breadth of relation to various, you know, even earlier parts of the history of philosophy that make it harder, I think, to talk about sort of what's the center, you know, of what's happening. So that's one complication. I think another has to do with the way in which something has happened to the field of analytic philosophy in the way that it's practiced and that is that increasingly over the past few decades people have become more and more specialized into disciplines and sub and so the sense that there are sort of general things that are happening that are important and of interest to anyone who's doing something that could be called analytic philosophy gets harder and harder to locate you know what those things are where those kinds of contributions are being made there was a time when I think it was relatively uncontroversial that you know, there were things that anyone who was seriously involved in doing work at the forefront of philosophy in this tradition you know, needed to be aware of, you know, whether it was Quine or Rawls or you know, Davidson or whatever. I think that seems less true today than it used to be. So I think for those reasons, the question of how one thinks about what is essential in the recent decades is harder, harder even than it otherwise would be. Our principle was to try to think about things that did have at least some plausible claim to be both sort of deeply connected with continuing and extending this tradition into the present. So we tried to look for things that in recent decades that were still very much tied into in various ways, things that earlier figures had done and sort of the question of how one goes on inheriting the work of Frege or Wittgenstein or whomever in a contemporary context. That was one principle that guided us. Another was that we really tried to look for things that did have a plausible claim on the general attention of sort of any serious analytic philosopher that seemed like they were part of what it is to have a general education in that field at this point. And so in that sense, one of the things I think that in general we're trying to do with the volume is to highlight those kinds of contributions as things that in a sense transcend some of the kind of subdisciplinary narrowness that has come to be a feature of how analytic philosophy gets practiced in the recent decades.
1: One of the things that Jay mentioned was something that struck me very much. And I wanted to bring out in the last part of the volume, which is I think in my own lifetime as a philosopher, a certain change in analytic philosophy has taken place. Jay was alluding to this. But to put it in a very kind of graphic way, I think when I was a graduate student, I was, in, that is to say, in the early 80s, I was sort of at the cusp, I was at the tail end of an era in which it was still the case if you were a graduate student in analytic philosophy in the United States, there were certain things. From the previous decade and the decade before that, which you thought you just had to have read. And if you went through the various departments, you get a lot of agreement about what those things are. You know, when I was a graduate student, they would have involved certain things by Nelson Goodman, John Rawls, Hilary Putnam, Saul Kripke, Donald Davidson, and so forth. And what those things are, no doubt, shifted decade by decade. But um, the point is, there was a certain kind of lingua franca. Even if I weren't, wasn't working in this area, there's a certain classic in that area of philosophy, which I should at least be conversant with. And that, I think, holds a tradition together in a certain kind of way, when it has a canon in that even minimal sense. And I think that's something that's really just gradually, but at this point rather totally, deteriorating analog philosophy. If you go to a lot of the major departments and you say, what are the 10 most important things you must have read that were written in the last 10 years. You get very different answers in different places. And some people would mention things that other people just don't think is worth your trouble. Or if they think you can read it, they would say, well, I certainly wouldn't put that on my top 10 list. Um, And I think that was much less true before. And that really changes the way the tradition holds together. But it also makes as Matt was anticipating, but beyond I think maybe even what you were just suggesting, it's not just that it's contemporaneous, so it's hard to have historical perspective. But even in the present, there's a real kind of problem about seeing what holds together the conversation. The conversations become extremely specialized. So earlier we we're talking about people were in deep disagreement with each other. But at least within those deep disagreements it was clear what the central disagreements were. And I think that's much less clear in contemporary analytic philosophy as things have speciated. So I think one of things that means is that for this last part of the volume, unlike the other parts of the volume, we were not as concerned to try to bring out both the unity in a certain period as well as the diversity, but we decided that the least contentious thing to do, while no doubt still being something that will prove very contentious, is to try to just bring out the diversity of the present as far as we could. And even that's hard to do because it's one thing to pick out, you know, the five most important people in some historical era that's three quarters of a century ago. But any five people you chose in the present would seem quite arbitrary. And we didn't want this volume to be by far the largest part of the volume. So there is some arbitrariness to the choice, which I think is just impossible to overcome. You know, Some of the people we chose, I feel like we could have chose this person instead, but we want an example of someone who's more this kind of analytic philosopher and that kind. And so ideally one would want many more people than we have room for. But what we didn't do, I guess is clear from what I've said, but it's worth making explicit, is we didn't do what I think there was a temptation to do, which is make some choice about what the real mainstream of core of contemporary analytic philosophy is and just have work of that sort. We really tried to give a sense of the way in which it has sort of blossomed into this diversity as something we thought belonged importantly to the overall story we were telling and what the last chapter of that story was. And that means that... Um, from anybody's point of view depending upon what they do if they're located in some particular part of analytic philosophy where they think this is the important work they're going to think some of what we have is relatively unimportant and we tried to do that in such a way that different people would think different things were unimportant and if we were doing that that was a sign to us that you know we were still remaining impartial but the principle of impartiality is a somewhat different one now is we weren't trying to Please, any, everyone. The last thing I thought I should say was that, you know, when I first started thinking about what to include 19 years ago, the idea was the last volume would be the most distinguished, some of the most distinguished contemporary practitioners of analytic philosophy. That meant, of course, people were somewhat older, established, but um, nonetheless still alive and active. Now that the volume finally coming out, not all, but almost all of them have died. You know, that is, that, that is the history of analytic philosophy in almost the past two decades as itself shifted, you know, as this volume has been coming into being in a way that I don't think either of us could have fully anticipated as we we're working on it. So that, you know, the thing that was supposed to bring out the diversity of contemporary analytic philosophy is itself already a bit dated you know and be eager to add another section now that keeps a couple of those people the younger ones um, who are still kicking as um, representatives of a larger section of people who are doing contemporary analytic philosophy and split that section into two sections of it where some of it already involves some things that we have a kind of historical distance to that we did 20 years ago when I started and so that already brings out how hard it is to produce a volume like this because the present itself doesn't stand still while you're trying to produce it.
2: I'll just add one more thing in relation to that, which I think what Jim says is exactly right, that we tried really quite deliberately to go for a last part of the volume that would not please everyone. Right? And I think that really speaks to our you know vision for what this project is. It, it really goes back to some of the things we were saying earlier about the way in which this project is part of you know, this idea of the the Norton anthology as a distinctive kind of project, and one that, among other things, has a kind of breadth and capaciousness and generosity such that one of the things it does is it challenges you to pursue avenues and take up things that you otherwise might not have been exposed to. And I think in the last part, by including such a diversity of things, I think one of the things that we're trying to do is to sort of, you know, move people a bit out of their comfort zone or to expose people to things, give people an opportunity to encounter things that they wouldn't otherwise when they're sort of approaching things from a more confined or more specialized or more narrowly kind of ideological perspective. And in that way, I think the volume really speaks to this conception of the Norton Anthology as something that can, you know, open up a wider world for the reader.
0: So we've been talking about a couple different things. And one of the things we've mentioned is that whereas in the 70s and 80s, there was like a core of canonical texts that everybody who wanted to be an analytic philosopher had to have read. And maybe there was also a core of topics that, you know, anybody who wanted to be an analytic philosopher had to demonstrate at least basic familiarity with. And as the tradition started including more and more in it, uh, it just became more and more heterogeneous. And some people, I think, would draw the conclusion from that that, like, there is no more analytic tradition. that is nothing coherent enough anymore these days to be called an analytic tradition, we can look back and treat it as a historical movement, like other historical movements of philosophy, whatever, you know, Neoplatonism, German idealism, etc., etc. But as a movement, it no longer exists today. There are no more analytic philosophers right now. Is that a step that you'd be willing to take? Or do you think that's going too far?
1: What I think is um, that it's an important feature of the history of the tradition, that that is a step that some philosophers are willing to take, and that is a topic of our volume. So just like it's an important part of the history of the tradition that the early part of it is not one in which anyone thinks of themselves as an analytic philosopher, and there's another moment where it's important for people to be doing something like representing themselves as part of a movement that's gaining steam, and they're trying to find ways to make the tent bigger, and it's another point in the tradition where people are arguing and have a real stake in who's the cleaner or purer or better or more rigorous or more faithful analytic philosopher or represents the future of analytic philosophy. It's an important feature of the current landscape that there are people that have exactly the view you described. I think there's actually, you know, very different kinds of flavors um, that we could distinguish of the sort of position that you are um, marking out. And one of the things we do in the afterwards is we have some quotations from people who are taking that kind of line. But, one kind of line is to say something like, as Bernard Williams does, that the difference between the analytic philosopher and the non-analytic philosopher is a difference. You can, mar- you can There are ways of picking them out, but he thinks there's no important philosophical distinction anymore. The differences aren't deep, and they don't cut philosophically. We have another person, like Hilary Putnam, who's arguing... It's not just that. It's actually philosophically pernicious. At this point, trying to figure out who an analog philosopher is and who isn't, is bad for philosophy. And he gives reasons. And then there are other people who just think something more like, a little closer to, I think, what you've said, which is there just isn't enough unity anymore for there to be one thing. I think there are yet other people who, um, in some ways, are taken to be, in other ways, prototypical of the present analog philosophy who think of themselves as a certain kind of scientific naturalist, say, who think that... um, This category just isn't helpful for where the tradition is gone anymore. So they see themselves as somehow representing the correct tradition or trajectory that the tradition has taken, but it's now such a departure from its beginnings that the original categories for thinking about the tradition no longer apply to them. So they're starting some new tradition, perhaps, which is the true successor. So those are all different developments. And what we're interested in is that um, this is happening now. But it's worth noticing that's very different, what we've just described, from a development in which nobody cares anymore, nobody talks about this anymore. Analytic philosophy has just, in some sense, completely spent itself and is only a label for something historical. There are some people who are trying to say that, but they're saying it in different ways. They don't disagree with each other, and other people really disagree with them and think the category matters. So I think it's, that, what that means is it's an open question, you know? But in some ways, you know, I am inclined to think that um, this tradition actually still has quite a bit of vitality. And the fact that such debates are taking place in it, though I think an important sign of, you know, where the tradition is now and how it's developed and how it's in a different place, doesn't mean that it's about to die out, actually. But it does mean that we need um, different ways of thinking about what holds it together than just even the ones that seemed helpful 20 years ago. And I think that's part of what these sorts of debates are symptoms. Uh, That's how I'd be inclined to put it.
2: Yeah, I think one of our, our hopes for the volume is precisely that it can be useful with respect to thinking about the question of what the future of the tradition could be. And one of the things that we try to underscore, as we've been saying, is that on the one hand, lots of relatively familiar and standard kinds of stories about what the analytic tradition was turned out to just be straightforwardly false even from a historical perspective. And so if that's what's motivating the thought that, you know, no one is an analytic philosopher anymore or the tradition doesn't hang together anymore because not everyone subscribes to blah 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 doctrine or something like that, well that's never been true. And so on the one hand we're trying to kind of undercut that form of the worry, but at a deeper level I think there's also a sense that the question of what it means to be an analytic philosopher and why that matters is one that itself has a very long history right, within the tradition. So in that sense the fact that people have a sense of the tradition as you know threatened or in crisis is not actually altogether an anomaly from the point of view of what's been true at various earlier moments within it. And I think that that kind of recognition opens up the, the question or maybe changes the question in a slightly different way so it's not just is there such a thing anymore or not, yes or no, but that by thinking about what the question of the tradition is as the question of how does one go on inheriting this history of all of these earlier figures, it opens up ways of thinking about what it could mean to go on being an analytic philosopher today in a different way and I think that's something that we really want the volume to do.
1: Another topic of the volume and especially the afterword of the volume which I think is intimately related with what we're just talking about but again worth perhaps uh, mentioning explicitly is something that goes with the development that Matt touched on in his question. So not only is there a development where some people are saying, well, maybe there is no more analytic philosophy, or maybe this isn't a useful term, or maybe it's become too diverse. Another thing that's happened is that there's become more, more and more interest in the history of analytic philosophy. The history of analytic philosophy itself relatively recently has sort of emerged as itself an area of philosophical study Whereas before, the idea was there were branches of the history of philosophy. You know, there's German idealism, there was ancient philosophy. And there was analytic philosophy. That was doing what we do now. Um, so the idea that um, there could be something which is the history of what we do now, which one needs historical tools to understand and get into focus, is a rather recent development. It's an interesting development because I think it challenges certain things about the identity of the analytic philosopher in a way it doesn't, certain other traditions that are more explicitly inheriting previous traditions. So I think it was part of the self-conception of at least a certain part of analog philosophy, not all, but a non-trivial percentage of it, that analog philosophy was modeled on the natural sciences in certain ways. And one of the ways in which it was modeled on the natural sciences is what mattered was cutting edge. The appropriate kind of unit of philosophical prose was something like the scientific article. There was a certain kind of mode of expression, which is the well-written article. And what you need to know it has a certain kind of recency and if it didn't it was because it was part of the understanding of the rigorous subject as it's developed right now. So you didn't go need to go read the original version of Einstein's article just like you don't need to read the original version of Frege's or Russell's article. We've all sort of gotten clear what the real development was and perhaps only a certain kind of historian can go back and read that thing written in 1905 which is caught up in certain debates. But the real sort of core of the thing as a contribution to the subject had been sort of extracted and made clear and had a kind of textbook form, and that's what we need. One of the things that happens with the history of analytic philosophy is that you have people are going back and rediscovering the earlier figures who supposedly have provided these results that were shared by everyone and introducing a kind of alienation effect where these earlier figures don't turn out to be who they were thought to be. And that itself then creates a certain kind of further complexity about what the tradition is. But in a funny kind of way, there's also been a need and interest for that. So you have more and more contemporary analytic philosophers who are worried about the kind of issue that Matt talked about. Also, doing things that have a slightly historical character, going back and picking out someone who's their hero, a Frege or a Carnap, or a Russell, or Wittgenstein, and trying to say who they think that person really was, and contesting one view against another, but also really reading historical text. So there's a funny sort of way in which One of the things I think that this kind of contest has created is a new kind of historical self-consciousness about the shape of the tradition within the tradition, even for the people who are practicing it in the present. That itself is a dramatic change in analytic philosophy itself. I don't think it's a death knell. I think in some ways analytic philosophy is becoming more like other forms of philosophy that you know from the beginning had a certain kind of overt relation to tradition. But that development is a change within analytic philosophy, which I think is transforming in certain ways, but in transforming, I don't think is necessarily in any way killing it off, but it is reshaping it in interesting ways.
3: Jay Elliot and James Conant, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you.
1: It's been a very great pleasure.
3: Yeah, thanks a lot. I look forward to dropping the volume in the bathtub. If
0: you have any questions about today's episode, give us a holler on Twitter at, at @elucidationspod. And as always, you can post a comment to our blog at lucian, that's L-U-C-I-A-N, lucian.uchicago.edu, slash blogs, slash elucidations. On the blog, you can also explore our full back catalog of previous episodes. Thanks again for listening.